All right, we are, we're going to do things a little differently this morning and address an issue that uh, really needs to be talked about here in the church. And uh, this isn't anything new, um, but it's an issue that um, has become extremely escalated through uh, a series of events that we saw unfold a couple weeks ago, actually three consecutive days, July 5th, 6th, and 7th. On July 5th, a black man by the name of Alton Sterling was fatally shot by a white police officer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The very next day, a black man by the name of Philando Castile was fatally shot by a police officer in St. Anthony, Minnesota. Then one day later, Dallas police officers Lauren Ahrens, Michael Smith, Michael Kroll, Patrick Zamaripa, and Brent Thompson were brutally gunned down in a premeditated attack on police officers. The aftermath of these shootings has been an intensified racial divide in our nation, not like most of us have ever seen in our lifetime. You have people on one side saying, Black lives matter, and yes, they absolutely do. But then you have people on another side saying blue lives matter, and yes, they absolutely do. And although those, those proclamations are meant to be inclusive, they've become divisive. They've become exclusive. And then you have people in the middle who are saying all lives matter. But even among the people in the middle, there's been a really sharp polarization with the unfolding of these events. And then to add fuel to the flame, you have people getting on social media every single day posting very divisive comments or even very ignorant comments. And then you've got the media. And as much as the media would like you to believe that they're there to serve you, they're really there to serve themselves. right? They're, they're there for, for ratings and they're there for money. They are, as much as, 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 um, what's his name? Can't even think of his name. Anyway, as much as certain journalists and uh, anchors would like you to believe that, that their report is unbiased, there's no such thing as unbiased, especially in the media. We all ourselves even have bias, depending on how we grew up and how we were raised and different values that we have. So there's no such thing as that. <clears throat> and, um, and the unfortunate thing is that because the media is only there to serve themselves and get ratings and all that, they, they sensationalize everything. And, and they're only going to cover things that are going to get them more ratings, right? And so it, it's, it's been apparent over the last week, especially, how lopsided the coverage has been over these three tragic events, right? Um, and then the other thing I just absolutely hate about the media is that there's just, it, it, like, these tragic stories come to us so much more frequently than they ever have. I don't think I've ever seen a, t a time in my life where flags fly at half-staff as often as they have in the last maybe year. I don't know, maybe longer than that. But I remember as a kid, it was a rarity to see a flag at half-staff, right? But it's like all the time now. 
Um, but because these events just come at us, it, it's, I, find my, I have found myself guilty of sort of not being callous, but you just don't, you don't, you don't really think about the people who were affected in the tragedy, right? It's just another one. Here comes another story. Someone's died, and, and you move on, right? You just don't think of it. And, and, the, and even the, the unfortunate thing um, with the media is because the media outlets are, are, are all vying for ratings, we sort of feed into that because I've even noticed in myself, I'm looking for which news agency has the best coverage on the event that just took place, right? Who's got the best video, right? And so we, it's all been just like this sensationalism that feeds and, and it doesn't help. It just divides even more. I think former President George W. Bush did a great job of summing up the problem as well as the solution during his speech during the uh, memorial of the slain Dallas police officers. He said, At times, it seems like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together. Argument turns too easily into animosity. Disagreement escalates too quickly into dehumanization. Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples, by judging ourselves by our best intentions. Isn't that true? And this has strained our bonds of understanding and common purpose. But Americans, I think, have a great advantage. To renew our unity, we only need to remember our values. We have never been held together by blood or background. We are bound by the things of the spirit, by shared commitments to common ideals. And this is the part of the speech I want you to really listen to. At our best, we practice empathy, imagining ourselves in the lives and circumstances of others. This is the bridge across our nation's deepest divisions. And it's not merely a matter of tolerance but of learning from the struggles and stories of our fellow citizens and finding our better selves in the process. Now, while I believe it's everyone's responsibility to do that, I also believe it is the church's responsibility to lead the way. And so this morning, we're going to sort of take some first steps towards Bridging this division by beginning a conversation in an effort to learn from the struggles and stories of our fellow citizens and finding our better selves in the process. And my understanding is so very limited, and so we're going to invite some people to come up here and have sort of a panel discussion. And so at this time, I'd like to call up on stage three of our church leaders. Uh, Billy Johnson, who's uh, one of our elders, Ryan Reichen, and Johnny Gregowitz. Would you give him a warm welcome? I was wondering where you went. <laughs> so I've had um, in-depth conversations with these guys, and um, each of them have very unique perspectives on this, this whole issue. And um, I think 
they can all help us grow in our understanding and in, in our empathy. Um, and so to accomplish this, we're just going to have this panel discussion, and we're going to work through some questions and let them, let them answer. Um, I want to just sort of jump right in and ask a kind of personal question to, um, to Billy and, and also Riken. Um, with the racial um, tension going on in our nation, are you afraid of being pulled over by a white police officer? <laughs> So uh, in, in answer, me, simple answer is no, I'm not. Uh, now, the, the key thing is Jim asked a question about a white police officer. So let me kind of give some context. I have an uneasiness. I have a discomfort uh, by any police officer just because of my history. Uh, so the question in terms of white police officer, for me, it's not a black-white question. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be accommodating anyone. I, I've lived a long life. So I've had bad experiences with both white and, and black police officers specifically. Uh, so I don't have a fear, I have a discomfort, but I think at some level there's probably a fear because of the preparation I go through. I was trained to be compliant, to be prepared. For example, in driving your vehicle, to have it in total operating order. Uh, because in my, my life cycle, I've had police officers pull me or other friends over on anything that may or may not have been an issue. Uh, fortunately, I've never had the, the issue of abuse. Uh, I've lived in Texas, Georgia, California, Missouri, Everywhere I've lived, I'd like to say I've never been pulled over, but I've been pulled over in every <laughs> single place I've ever lived. Um, and and, and I, I got speeding tickets that I deserve, so no, no challenge on that. But I mean the minor things. Uh, I was sharing with Jim, for example, I know for a fact, and I taught my sons this, a bald tire is an infraction. Many people don't know that. So I made sure their rubber was good both for safety and for the fact that if a police officer chose to drive up behind them and see a tire that he or she would determine to be slick, or ball, that's an infraction that can start an issue. So for me, it's a matter of being prepared. I mean, as simple as uh, uh, is this, I have my license and insurance card out before my car completely stops. And I'm not reaching for anything once my car stops and I can see the officer in the mirror and he or she can see me. I'm very cautious about that because I've seen a lot of things go very, very bad. So that's been my experience, uh, you know, in terms of police officers. There are bad cops, obviously. My brother was a police officer, a very good police officer, not because of my, bro my brother. Uh, I've had relatives who were police officers. So I, I know there's a balance, but there is, for an African-American male specifically, I can speak to that experience I taught my sons, you've got to be prepared, you've got to be compliant, you don't challenge. I have never asked a police officer early in any stop, why did you pull me over? I would never do that. Never, because that's a confrontational issue with the wrong cop. And again, black or white. So that's kind of been my experience. That's what I've taught my sons to do. Uh, and, and my father, if you go back, he's deceased, but if he was alive today, he'd be 84. He was taught to not even make eye contact with a police officer, specifically a white cop. Wow. Drop your head, be prepared, do whatever you needed to do because eye contact was a symbol of maybe aggression or being overconfident or being arrogant or being what then was called a very smart or arrogant N-word. Because I grew up in an era where that was a free-flowing word and my mm -hmm. father even more so. So it gets passed on generationally and for me, again, not the fear, but discomfort for sure. And to make sure that things are, again, for me, just being in order. Thank you. I would say yes. Um, but not 
for me, I think, you know, like you said, in, in light of recent events, mm-hmm. um, the recent events aren't what have put me in fear. Like, I've been in fear for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and just to put some context, Jim and I had this conversation last weekend um, before service, and it wasn't even uh, – Jim was like, I had no idea that this was a thing for you. Like, this was um, – because if you don't know, we went beforehand and prayed with the police officers in Prosper. And for me, I grew up in a military household. My, my dad did, like, almost 21 years in the Army. Um, we lived in Hawaii. We lived in California, Oregon, which is where my parents are from. We lived in Maryland on the East Coast and then in Texas. And, you know, just across the country, they're very different cultures. They're very um, – even West Texas, which is where I graduated high school versus, you know, coming to Dallas. And so the um, one of the things that was for me growing up is a lot of you have met my parents. My my dad is Dutch Indonesian, um, and my mom is uh, white. I don't know, just a lot of things. In, in American Indian, um, I could go through the whole rigmarole, but there's there's a lot of things. Um, but but for her, when my dad growing up was um, he was the only child of his family born in America. They were all his parents were immigrants. And my mom, uh, he was the only darker kid in their community. And so when they were getting married, my mom has extended family members that they told her they disowned her. And they said, you're not going to bring that inward in our house, which we're not even African-American. Um, so I was like, that's intriguing and <laughs> very ignorant uh, when, they, when they tell me those things. But I was still taught growing up uh, things like, when you walk into a convenience store, never have your hands in your pockets because they're going to think you're stealing something. When you go someplace, don't bring a backpack because they're going to think you're trying to steal something, and which I thought was kind of normal. But I realized as I got older, some of my friends, that's not a normal thing. Not everybody learns that. And, and so especially in minority communities, we learn that. And then my experiences with police officers just throughout my life. Um, as far as getting tickets, like you said, for minor things or just my interactions with them have been, you know, I've had a few positive and I, and I try to count those positive, but uh, a lot of them have been negative and, you know, and it only takes one, but there have been several. And I remember even having a conversation. There was a girl that the Johnny and I went to master's commission with. And I remember talking to her one time, um, you know, very pretty young lady. And she was talking about how uh, white, white young lady and, and she, she was a horrible driver. She was awful. And, and so she said, she's like, yeah, I've probably been pulled over 27 or 28 times, um, but I've only gotten like four tickets. And I was amazed because I think at the time I'd been pulled over about 10 times and gotten 12 tickets. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, man, this, these fractions are not right. Something's not lining up, you know? Um, but, but yeah, so just my, uh, my fear has, has always been, and I don't know if it's – and it's not a racial police officer thing. It's not a white police officer thing. But for me, I think part of it is um, I've seen a lot of abuse of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just with police. I've seen that with in the military, um, which has kind of, like, skewed my, my view on, on military members. I've, I've seen that in ministries, uh, which has skewed my view of pastors. And so, uh, so yeah, I do live in fear of uh, the police just because the amount of authority there – um, but also just because, you know, in, in West Texas, especially where I went to high school and start, some of my first interactions were, especially the negative ones, if you're brown, everybody thinks you're Mexican. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not. 
you know, I, I mean, I, I had to tell my sophomore year, I was filling out my paperwork on my PSAT, and I checked um, Asian Pacific Islander, and, and a teacher came by and said, no, you need to check Mexican. And I was like... <laughs> I think I know what I am. Like I don't, I don't know you. What are, what is, why is this a thing? But um, I started to realize, you know, that's just, just the cultural difference there. So, yeah. so yeah. So it wasn't yeah. even though it's a, there's more focus on it right now mm-hmm. in our culture. Um, I've always, um, probably since I was 15 or so, just kind of had an innate fear of um, the police because I didn't know how they were going to approach me as an individual. Okay. Um, Billy, you... um, Jim, I just want to say the question was directed to them because I am a Caucasian male. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to be clear. I didn't want people to be like, oh, reverse racism taking place. (laughs) Some of you might wonder why Johnny's up here, but... but (laughs) Every week. Every week. Every week, yeah. But but Johnny Johnny has taught me quite a bit in the last few weeks, um, and... He, was, he grew up with mostly um, African-American friends, and, um, and I heard Riken say to him the other day, um, you're getting whiter every day, because I think he was <laughs> listening to a Coldplay song or something. I don't know what you were listening to. It was Ben Howard, okay? Okay. <laughs> but it's still a legitimate point. Just for, con- yeah, for context, when I met Johnny, Johnny was, like, Johnny was all about rap yeah. and hip-hop, and I was all about folk music. And then I remember one morning we both rolled up to church, and Johnny's listening to Mumford and Sons, and I was listening to Usher, and I was like, oh, how times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> we had swapped. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Billy, you have raised um, two sons um, who are now adults. Most of us have met them, and they live in the Houston area and are driving back quite often. What kind of conversations have you had with them? Well, I guess to repeat what I said, I gave them some of the same thing passed on to me about interactions and, and, and right to the point about authority. First, be respectful because you should. You know, it has nothing to do with, with color or, or the role. Right. Uh, aside from that, when it comes to police interaction, I gave them the same lesson. You know, lesson. First of all, I have to be prepared so you're not getting stopped, quite frankly, in Canada if you're something stupid. Uh, so let's take, take that out of the mix. And then engage professionally and, and be prepared. You know, let's not, uh, I left my license at home. It's not going to work, go, go good for you. Uh, your, your car registration. So I've started with those basic things that need to be intact, everything. And then from there, it's don't challenge. You know, if you want to raise the question, the time is when you're kind of completing that transaction, either getting a ticket or not, if you're lucky, then you may want to raise that question if it's not made clear. But never put themselves in a position where a police officer is going to think that he's challenging them. Uh, time of night, you know, as a parent, we all know there's not a lot of good things happen after 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so in spite of the fact that I don't get off to college, if I probably heard every story, I'd probably have a heart attack today. But, you know, try to have yourself at home in place at a safe time and a good time. Uh, try to, for example, I mean, we often, I don't have a daughter, but, you know, no one wants their daughters, obviously, every alone. And the same thing with my sons. It's not going to be good to be in a car by yourself at 2 o'clock in the morning, for example. Uh, you need to have a friend or a buddy. You go to the party or whatever it is and, and get home. Uh, you know, if, if you're drinking and, and our kids, I may tell you tonight, but you're going to probably take a sip somewhere at some point in time, then you need to stay your butt wherever you are and don't come. Let's not get any DUIs. Let's not even have the pretense. Let's just take everything out. So, again, the, 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 the message was to be, again, respectful, to use caution, to use prudent judgment. Uh, don't be the smart aleck. 
uh, don't challenge things. Uh, they've had their friends. We grew up because I moved corporately. And many of you know that we were most of the times either the only African American family or one of two or three in an entire subdivision. The size could have been 50 homes or 500 homes. We were it most times. So in their school settings, again, this transferred in terms you've said the the respect thing is is be respectful because you're, they're going to know who you are. You know, my first son started school here in Plano over at um, Jackson Elementary School. And there were three African-American boys. And one teacher got him confused. There was only three, and the other two were twins. <laughs> so she says that he said something in the line waiting for water. It was one of the two twins. She took it to the principal. I had to go to school at 7 in the morning. It wasn't even my son. He wasn't even in that line for water. But here I am having to take time off from work, go to explain to this teacher he wasn't disrespectful, he wasn't a smart aleck, and by the way, I happen to know your entire demographic here on African-American students, period, male. It was just three African-Americans at that school at that time. This is my son. It was not him. Can you look at him and see the difference in the other two? So what I had to teach them was in a, in a, in a broad spectrum to be consistent about this area of being respectful, being prepared, taking care of your business, uh, and then if they had an issue to fight, I mean, God ultimately fights it, but I'll take the issue on as a parent. You don't have to step out and determine your rights at school on something. I had a lot of situations with them that I had to deal with. Plain old school is the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to go there on the same thing. Not, the, not my son. It was this kid. That's happened numerous times. And it should, it's ridiculous to me because it was such a small sample size. It should have been easy to get it right. Uh, so what I've taught them, again, is the same thing. You know, be respectful, be polite, be prepared, be on time. All of those things fit into this issue because there will be some component. I told them that being profiled. What I'm concerned about today is when they drive back and forth is, you know, some police who randomly, again, doesn't matter color, stops them for no reason and amps the situation up. Police are fearful they're people like us. Every, every cop who hits the ground every day doesn't go out feeling really, really good that day. There are cops who go to work feeling very fearful, yeah. even before these tragic situations occurred. So realize they're people, too. Give them some room so that they don't step into a crazy zone. And then my son, who you've met before, Elliot's wife, is by definition white. She's got the Native American mix and everything else. doesn't matter. What do people see? That's a concern for me. Last Friday when they came to visit me, my call was, you leave on time. He's got a kind of heavy foot on the pedal, and you stay right in the speed zone. This is not going to be the weekend for you to get stopped with your wife and my granddaughter in that car by the wrong person, wrong time, wrong police officer. Notwithstanding, there are nutcases out here. Yep. You could just be driving past someone. There's a lot of road rage, a lot of, a lot of hate, a lot of evil. So that, that's a burden for me. It's just saying, God, I pray that they're okay, they're safe. I pray that nothing happened. I pray when you get to the gas station, there's nothing crazy that goes on. All those kind of things that, that occur. You know, I, mean, I had to teach them those things, you know, how and where and what, what you may be getting. But most importantly also, everything is not a race. They're just ignorant people, stupid people, and people who judge people. Sometimes it's an economic. I've got crap because of a certain kind of car I may be driving and got crap behind that. And it may not have been a police officer, neighbors. Mm -hmm. You know, we first moved to Dallas. We were in a neighborhood, and there were three African-American families. And we were, I was out picking up some stuff in the yard one day, and a lady came over and said, can I meet the people of the house who lives here? Some new people moved in. And I said, sure. So I just sent her to the door. You know, she knocked on the door. Sheila came to the door. Well, she was a fair-skinned African-American woman with all this mix as well. That was okay. I was obviously the yard dude. <laughs> 
okay, that's fine. That's the kind of experience I've taught them that when you do it, it's just people, it may or may not, a shock may have been just because they didn't expect or anticipate. It may not have been just a hardcore racial thing as opposed to assumption. The neighborhood basically was an all-white neighborhood. I come to the door, it's like, not what I expected to see. So I've had people inhale, take a second breath. So I've had to pass that on on don't react to some of the shock in our reaction. It's a pure play of race. It is a shock, maybe. You weren't maybe supposed to be there, they thought. So how do you now embrace them so they understand, hey, glad to meet you. You know, I get that oftentimes. You extend that hand. And if some people are going to be stuck on stupid, you leave them stuck on stupid. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. Yeah. But that's what I've tried to do with them is just try to give them those life lessons. Yeah. And in the moment here and now, because there are millennials like you guys, to make sure they're dialing it down and don't get caught up on, I'm going to react to this because everybody's got their emotions in it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and be, you know, men about it. Be godly men and use their faith first. Good. Um. Just by comparison, the only thing my dad taught me was to pull over when the police are behind you. Right? That was it. Um, Reichen, you're about to have a son. Uh, is there anything you can add to that? I have no idea. You have no idea? I, I, I mean, Celine and I have talked about it multiple times. And, and even just her approach to the police has been different than my approach to the police. And, and that's one thing that that she's, she's clearly stated is, I don't want to teach our children. She doesn't want me to instill fear in them, which I totally get, and she's totally right. I don't want them to adopt my fear. I want them to have a healthy respect. I want them to, to understand, you know, I want my kids to understand those things. And, you know, it, but it is an element to where I also want to point them out to realize that there are different people in different cultures, and, and that should be something to be celebrated. And understanding those cultures, um, and understanding those cultures, and celebrating them, also sometimes you have to look at at their struggles. And so I also want my kids to understand that that some people approach things differently, and maybe maybe even police. And so I don't know how those conversations are going to go. I don't know how they're going to get brought up. Um, I know that when my kids too, I'm not going to be like, "Nah, it's the popo run." Like that's that, that's not going to be that's not going to be my approach, um, but you know, and, and honestly, that's that's an area where I need to glean. I mean, I've learned a lot about parenting just from being around Johnny and being around you know you and being just the members of this church, and that's just kind of that observation and learning how to have those conversations. And so I'm probably going to ask a lot of questions because I'm be like, I don't I don't know how to approach this, so I don't know. Right. I know I don't want my kid to, to inherit my fear, right. um, and I want my kid to respect authority. But I also want my kid to understand culture. Right. And so there's a tension there that I'm wrestling with, and I've got to pray through and get wisdom on. And you got a few years before he starts driving. It's true. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I want to – this next question is for all three of you, but I want to start with Johnny. Um, because Johnny has taught me a lot in, in reacting to events. Um, how did you, Johnny, react, and this is for all three of you, react to the tragic events that unfolded the week before last? Sure. So um, as, as Jim was saying, as part of my background, I, I grew up in, I was blessed to grow up in a very diverse culture where two of my best friends were, um, were African-American. And what that entailed was, you know you're really good friends with someone if their parents have permission to whoop you also, right? <laughs> like that's how you, that's how we determined our friendship. So when uh, we got in trouble, not only would I get um, 
I think, I think Caucasians call it spanking, but African Americans would call it whoopings, right? <laughs> so you could get two whoopings and a spanking growing up with my group of friends. So it was, it, it, we were we were very very close, but um, it really opened the the door to a lot. And I can remember asking questions, um, just even as a kid, noticing how uh, how it seemed like my friends and their family they had a sense of we have to stick with each other and i didn't you know it's a it's a more complex question than me just asking my parents why why do uh, african americans or black people feel like they need to stick together what's why are they proud of their race you know and i and i understand that a little bit more now but just having that as a background even as a young kid i know i was questioning that so my reaction to everything that went down was really it, it, it was really um, on polar opposites as far as input I was receiving. What I mean by that was I had a whole section of friends who I know uh, from my background who were who I felt were really hurting and were really angry and were really scared. And then I had another section um, that I felt were very um, were very insincere and not um, aware and really just spouting off opinions before even looking at the issue. And, and so when everything happened, I decided that first I wanted to, before I gave any opinions, give time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think one of the dangers of, of all of us having access to social media is any, anybody can say any opinion right away. And I think there needs to be a time where we understand as a people that someone's dad, someone's father, someone's brother was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there should be a time of mourning before you give your opinion on whether that's valid or not. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to share a shameful thing about me, there's been times in ministry where I've seen people hurting. And I know in my earthly or we say human nature or sinful man what i my go-to is try to tell them why they what they did wrong to to deserve that mm-hmm. right um and in one of my deepest darkest thoughts that i've repented i'm really ashamed of is i knew a a, a young girl who had been sexually abused and i was so angry and my thought process was if only you hadn't been drinking this wouldn't have happened to you and I was just thinking, what a horrible thing to tell someone. Yeah. Someone who had been, you know, sexually abused to say, well, it's your fault because you were drinking. Mm-hmm. It's not her fault that she was, you know, abused that way. And I felt like a lot of that was going on in social media. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking a time back and saying, I'm really sorry. I, I'm here for you. If you need something, let me know. Instead of extending that grace and mercy and understanding what I felt was there was an immediate jump to, well, this and this, and if this didn't have this, and it's like, before we go giving our opinions, let's first love. And something that um, I'm a really big proponent of is uh, a book by Bob Goff called Love Does. And one of the things he says there is, um, I found out that people need our love a lot more than they need our opinions. And I was really disappointed with some of my friends where I have one side who are, I literally had a, a 36-year-old um, 
black man who's, who's been a very close childhood friend of mine who said, there's nothing who scares, that scares me more than the police. Him post that, and I got people on the other side that are saying, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's just, there wasn't a lot of room for understanding and, and love. Right. So, um, so back to the question, I guess. My, my first reaction was, I want to be very careful on what I say and do here because it's not really a time for me to address this world, the world problem, but maybe it's time for me just to stand beside someone. Right. Um, one other thing I'll say is people a lot of times might not remember what you say, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I wanted to make sure that more than fixing what I thought was right or wrong, I wanted to be, I want to be with people while they're mourning or while they're hurt or while they're scared. Right. So, Um, my reaction was, I just need to add real quick. (laughs) I was very angry, angry. And my wife heard a lot of that. I don't want to make, make it seem like I was, you know, all Zen like and peaceful, (laughs) you know, like, mm, um, I I was very angry, but I made a promise that I wouldn't post anything on social media. (laughs) So there you go. Um, I think my reaction was and, and you guys don't know this. We we were at staff meeting the other night, even just talking about how we should approach these, and even just among Jim, Johnny, and myself, Johnny and I probably went back and forth to each other about for about thirty minutes, just trying. We're probably saying the same thing, or we were saying the same thing, but like on two different extremes until we could find. You know, so it's a very it's tough to talk about, um, and and I know for me, I really started. I think even back with the Michael Brown incident a couple of years ago in Ferguson is um, that that kind of I wanted to understand it more, mm-hmm. and so I started doing uh, reading a lot of articles and there's some books I plan on picking up. Um, Selena would probably say that I'm never going to read them because we have a bookshelf full of books that <laughs> I mean to read, um, but but some podcasts and different things that I was trying so I could understand issues and especially African American culture in the u.s more than i do but um my first thoughts were they're just is i was sad like i was i was really upset you know um and i knew i knew the backlash that was going to come and uh and then with the police officers i was you know we don't have cable at my house so it, it's not like i could like watch the, the, the play-by-play that everybody's posting on the media um and i also didn't have facebook selena and i taking some time away from Facebook specifically. So it probably sheltered me from a lot of people's reactions. Um, Because one thing I know is a lot of people's reactions feed whatever I'm feeling in one one direction or the other Mm -hmm. and all those opinions. And so my my initial thought was there's going to be a lot of opinions, and I don't know what those are going to be. I don't necessarily want to see them. Mm -hmm. But but I did – I do believe in – one of the reasons we're having this conversation even this morning as a church is scripturally, you know, if you look in, uh, I think it's Isaiah 1, it talks about, you know, doing justice, mm-hmm. right, and, and standing up for the oppressed and, and how we want to start doing that. Not that we haven't done that as a church, but how we want to be a voice and lead in that arena. Mm-hmm. Um, Micah 6, 9 says, do justice, um, love kindness, and uh, walk humbly with your God. Mm-hmm. And... And so my thing was, how, how do I love and mourn 
with people because the conversation of whether somebody deserves to be shot or not is one conversation, but knowing that there are hurting families Mm -hmm. and there are still lives lost and we need to mourn with those. Mm -hmm. And, And as Christians, we're called to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. And it's hard because there are a lot of things for us to mourn. It seems like lately, like I'm just, I'm tired of mourning. I want to rejoice with those who rejoice. Mm -hmm. And so I was just, I was tired. I'm like, man, I got to weep with more people. Mm -hmm. But, um, but one thing that Johnny said I thought was good is just being present. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hopped back on Facebook, I think the weekend after everything, because, um, I actually hopped back on because there was supposed to be a Black Lives Matter protest going on in downtown McKinney, and I live near there. And and somebody, um, Billy said it, there's always people that are trying to stir the pot. They're always just mm-hmm. psychopaths or, you know, idiots or whatever. Um, and, and they, somebody posted a picture of um, a Black Lives Matter person slicing the throat of a police officer. And they posted that in this group. And I'm like, that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, but but knowing we live down there, I wanted to make sure. I'm like, all right, are we good? You know, so I'm trying to find this thing on Facebook. So I hop back on Facebook to try and find this thing that's circulating. And, and I couldn't find it. But one of the things I did find was my, my buddy BJ, who's a good friend of mine. Um, he's, he's African-American. And he, um, he posted, he's just like, it's amazing how many of my friends I didn't realize were racist or racist. And the, and the pushback that he had gotten. And and so I sent him a text, and I just said, hey, man, I haven't been on Facebook. I just hopped back on, saw your post. Just want you to know that there's a lot of crap going down. I've got your back, and I love you. And that's it. I just wanted you to know. And, and, and one of the things that we need to do is before we share our opinions with people, we need to be present. Uh, a lot of us, we live in suburbia. We live intentionally away from things that are messy. We don't want to be around, you know, a lot of us don't like to be around the homeless. They make us uncomfortable. We don't want to be around situations that are downtown. We, you know, we joke about Oak Cliff being the hood and things like that out here where we have, you know, very well-planned cities and streets and utilities and things. And so we live away from a lot of messy society. And so it's easy for us to have opinions about messy society or to look at that from the distance, but it's another thing to actually be present and enter in. And, and a lot of us don't want to be present. And so, and Facebook is not a presence. Facebook is just a forum, you know, Twitter's not a presence. And so to actually know somebody or to reach out with somebody, to weep with somebody literally is something that we need to do. And, and, and even just the text message to my buddy, you know, um, I think just builds our relationship to know that, look, man, I don't understand. I don't understand everything you go through or everything that, that Billy goes through or the conversations. But what I do know is I'm here for you and I want to understand. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand that you're hurting and so I'm here for you. So that was my reaction, I guess, to everything going on. Okay. Great. Yeah, I think for me it was, um, you know, because, again, perspective, you know, living as long as, as God's blessed me is I've got this, you know, all these, you know, not the literal videos, but videos. The, the years so I was was hurt, was grieved, uh, shocked uh, because of, again, what was being branded and labeled as a very peaceful kind of protest thing. Uh, I, with those things, I hear those things, kind of expect something may happen, you know, and, and they were at the end of this thing and nothing had happened. Like, that's a good thing. It was also, which, you know, uh, overlooked by the media, but it was actually a, an interface 
interfaith cross representation of everybody who just believed in trying to deal with rights uh, as opposed to got labeled as the Black Lives Matter, which, you know, that's being branded now as the anti-police thing, which, you know, it goes with how you brand something. You know, I have a, I have a concern about that name. I would never probably have, uh, have named that the Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, in, in terms of all lives have to matter. But your point was that disproportionately there were people being – yeah, the reaction to, yeah, 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 the Dallas protest. I'm sorry if you hear that. So uh, when that had happened, and so for, for, for me, at the end of that, then the shooting occurred and the tragedy was not shocked because of, because of evil, because of madness and craziness that people will do. Uh, we are here in Dallas, so we're closer to it. Uh, and, and so for me, I was grieved. I was hurt. Uh, I went to bed around 2 o'clock, and one of the things I did that I told Jim would try to be more conscious of, and I've kind of been in this place for about the last 10 years, is remember, as you talked to, to pray for the, 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 the mothers. You know, this, this guy who was evil, he's got a mother who, unfortunately, he lived with his mother. That lady has got to live with this the rest of her life every single day. So I prayed for her. I uh, prayed for the officers, for their families. Uh, you know, everyone who's hurt and impacted our city, our nation. And we're isolated in a sense. You know, we don't have the dynamics necessarily that we assume in a Prosper, a Frisco, a Plano, McKinney, pick your pocket, that in inner city Dallas. I've worked and lived in Dallas. I spent 10 years in Dallas Independent School District volunteering. I've been through metal detectors in schools. I don't know if they have them out here. I've never seen a metal detector uh, north of, if you will, 635. I don't know. But there, I went through metal detectors as a routine point of going into a school to volunteer in, in Dallas. Uh, and these, some of these schools were beautiful, brand-new schools. So, so I prayed for the situation and the circumstances that, that people live in, have to survive in. And, and so that's, that's what hit me. It's just burden. It was a burden for the rest. Uh, I'm still burdened by in terms of what, what can we do, continue to pray. But not only that, I was telling Jim, the situations that occur like with the, the terrorists, because that was a terrorist act as well, in Nice. And I saw on TV the other day in terms of media, people around the world, uh, memorializing and empathizing with those people who died in Nice. Now, I'm not saying anything negative to anyone, but did that impact you? Did we have concern about that? Did we stop and pray as opposed to just view it on TV? Because the rest of the world, and there were, I saw people in Muslim countries that put, uh, you know, memorials together all around because of that, because it was a, an attack. And so we have to be, I think, more conscious and empathetic mm -hmm. that all of these, it's all evil. It's all, it, it's, the Bible tells us these things will occur. It doesn't make it any easier. But I think for me, it's a matter of, you know, being empathetic, not sympathetic. That's not going to help. Pray and then figure out going forward, what can you do to make a difference and make a change? Great. Um, something that's true about just humanity in general is that the further we are away from a problem, the simpler we think it is. Like, like, we can easily say, you know, with all the terrorism going on in the Mideast, we can just, easy, you know, sit back and easily say, well, we just need to bomb them, right? Just wipe them out of the planet, off the planet, and it'll be solved, right? Um, or, or, you know, even, even with, you know, the, the issue we're discussing, you know, people can easily sit back and say, well, they should just, you know, do what the police officer says, right? Um, what would you say to help bring the rest of us closer, to understand where we don't sim uh, simplify the issue. Any of you guys? Um, yeah, a, a couple quick things, and I'll try to be quick here. So number one, I think you need to be aware of who your friends are mm -hmm. in 
And what I mean by that is I challenge all of you, your friends are probably look just like you. Like, where's the intentionality of having someone? (laughs) And what I don't mean is I don't think you should go to someone and say, hey, will you be my African-American friend or will you be my Mexican friend? You know, at church, they said I need at least one. Right. And I'm I'm looking. So um, but and we joke about that. But I do think. As a default, we all naturally go towards who, who we are and you will continue to be ignorant and unaware. We were talking about uh, the funny thing about blind spots is that they're blind. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I got blind spots. Yeah, but if they're really blind spots, then you don't know you have them. <laughs> you know? So on one level, we're all like, yeah, we got blind spots. But um, to even say that is to then you, we kind of throw out, but yeah, we know. So um, uh, my wife and I have talked several times about how much of an advantage that we've had where we both had both parents. And this isn't a race thing. It's just a parent's thing. Um, we've had two parents. Yeah. We have an advantage over mm-hmm. people who've had one. Yeah. We just have. Uh, we've talked about how both our parents have helped us financially in different areas where my wife has had her school paid for. We've been blessed in that way. And my parents helped me put a down payment on a house when I was young. Yeah. And how much that puts us ahead. Yeah. And unless I'm touching something outside of my own world, I won't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, you know, there's always jokes on Twitter about first world problems, right? Um, you know, having to get up to change the TV, you know, cause your remote isn't working first world problems or, you know, things like that. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there's, we talk, we joke about that, but there's, there's some serious to that seriousness to that too. And so as someone who's white, Uh, I have to be careful um, because if I'm ignorant about something, it means I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I know that's like really basic, but sometimes we speak so much and say, yeah, yeah, I know I'm ignorant, but here's da, 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 da. If you truly believed you were a little ignorant on how someone has lived their life, um, then, then you do have a responsibility to, to, to do that. We were talking in staff and I told you one of the things I love about Uh, or that you can be sure that you're following God, right? And this is a Christian principle, is if you disagree with him on something. What I mean by that is this. If if you're following a God that you agree with 100%, you have no no security that you're actually following God and not just a projection of who you think God is. Unless you disagree with something in the Bible. And that's where the smorgasbord of Christianity, where you can say, well, I agree with this, I agree with this, I don't agree with this, so I'm leaving this church. That's where you really have to struggle because all you're doing is choosing your own God and you're not really following God. Mm-hmm. And what that is, that, that whole idea is you need something objective from the outside to speak into your life to say, to, to know what's real and what's not. Because we all have these social conditionings and, and where we're from. So with that being said, reaching outside of just my own experiences and my own worldview to understand, I think is going to be crucial. It's going to be crucial. That's all I got right now. Anybody else? Um, I I think along with that, just getting perspective and pausing. Before you do anything, one thing that Johnny said the other night when we were talking that, that I really liked is just assume everything that you know is wrong when it comes to certain situations. 
Um, because we all have things that, that have taught to us. We all have um, cultures. And even, you know, when I talk to the young adults and, and really challenge them on their faith, uh, there were a lot of things that when I was 18 or 19 that I even learned in the church that I don't believe anymore just because they were, they were part of um, religious elements that, that when I actually studied Scripture, I was like, mm, I don't I disagree with that. I think this is what Scripture says, or I think this is. And so um, those situations also happen culturally. And, and I think one of my favorite quotes is To Kill a Mockingbird whenever Atticus Finch is talking to Scout, and he says, um, you can never fully understand a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. And, and to try and understand where somebody's coming from, there's a, um, there's a hip-hop artist, spoken word artist named Propaganda, um, incredibly intelligent, uh, and, and he speaks on the issue a lot. And, and there were a few things I learned just in, in, talk, or in listening to him um, kind of talk about the issues that I didn't fully understand. One is just understanding the difference between blatant racism and, like, systematic racism because they're not the same thing. And, and, and trying to understand how systematic racism plays into our day-to-day lives and kind of um, trickle-down economics and, and how you can kind of track all that back in the last hundred years, even after World War II, and kind of seeing the differences in, between the urban and um, the suburban areas and just how those systems have played different roles. Also just the differences in culture and way. Uh, cultures have had to adjust to certain situations and how those play into a role now. So I won't get into all that. But I also know one of the things that he said that um, whenever all the riots were going on in Ferguson and, and he was explaining, he's, you know, he's a Christian guy. He says, I, I disagree with looting. Looting sinful. I disagree with rioting. I think it's wrong. But if, you, he goes, if you're raising a child and that child's trying to tell you that they're hungry or the child's trying to tell you something, and you don't pay attention to them, you don't pay attention to them, you don't pay attention to them. And finally that child screams, and you give them what they're asking for. And the next time around the same thing happens, where they're asking for something, they're trying to get something, and then they scream, and you give them what they want. The child learns that screaming is the way you get, that they get attention. And he said for for black culture in America in certain situations, um, the way that they've found that they can point to an issue or get attention is by the L.A. riots in the 90s or by the riots going on in Ferguson. And so he's saying, he said, I don't agree with what they're doing. What they're doing is sinful, but I understand it because of the way that, because of the way society is approaching them. And so I thought that was an interesting perspective. I think another interesting perspective was, Celine and I went to an adoption seminar last year, and, and one of the questions I asked um, this family that did a lot of fostering is I said, you know, how do you explain to your kids whenever these other kids are coming in and they might have behavioral issues because they've been passed through the system or they're going, um, they're, they're just reacting poorly. And, and, and the mother said, you know, one of the things that we always tell our kids is sometimes sad looks mad. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so insightful because that doesn't just apply to kids. That applies to adults. And, and the way we react is sometimes the hurt is so deep that that we don't know how to process it, and it comes out violently. It comes out um, in anger. It comes out. And so um, before we pass a judgment on a situation, I think it's always important to look and say, what is the root here, and how do we, how do we understand how we got here? And, and, and I would say that is, in looking at something from a distance, that always helps. Great. 
Yeah, I think the only thing I, I think for us, just uh, as I was talking about grief, just be prayerful. Uh, as you raise the point, we need to, you know, clearly understand our history in its totality uh, and not take away from that there's a blame game or being perspective, but you have to know it. Uh, and then I think it's having, Jim and I talked about this a little bit, putting yourself in situations where you're uncomfortable. You know, if you're always comfortable, and I recall back in the days where Grace and Jim did this study on this, but this real cool dude from California, Spiky Hair, and about living in the bubble. And he's this real cool guy in every week. We, we live in bubbles. I, I live in a bubble, still in Jim, that most of the people that I'm around, other than when I'm at work, they're Christians, they're believers, uh, at least profess to be. You know, I know everybody's probably not. But, but my point is that's, you know, there's a bubble element to it, and I try to move away from it and back to it again. So I think it's getting in those positions where you're uncomfortable and, and as you raise questions, ask. You know, as you, you ask me, how did you feel about that? Ask that question. How did you feel? Why did you feel that way? You, you, you learn more. You gain some insight. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, back to God's Word, just praying and, and having God show you because it tells us, show me. Show me what's wrong with my heart if there's something wrong with my heart. Search my heart. You know, create the clean heart in me. Just just go before. Because we look in the mirror, there's something wrong with all of us looking in that mirror. All we see is that face. So we've all got some, some responsibility to help make a difference, but we're not all responsible for the evil that's going on. So you can't take that burden on and become all of a sudden on the, on the extreme right wing or left wing either. Mm-hmm. But there is a responsibility. We do have an obligation, and, and that's what the church has always been about mm-hmm. uh, in, in making change. You know, and Jesus wasn't quiet about this. Right. You know, there were protests. Uh, uh, he, he paid the price for that. We don't have to. So I think we have, a, a, an, as you said, we have the responsibility, but we also have the privilege of, of uh, doing something. But it starts with us individually, and it's not some radical, big, massive thing we got to do. Just kind of start to change the mindset, talk, share. Again, being in an uncomfortable space more than comfortable, I think that's where the growth will come from. That's how we can make a difference. Awesome. All right, uh, one last question. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Um, Many white people, including myself, have been silent through as these events have unfolded because we don't know what to say. Um, What is an appropriate way to break the silence? Um, and, And... how, you know, what, how, what would you have liked your friends to say to you, Billy, as these events occurred? I oversimplify. It sounds complex, but it was what you said to me. So how do you feel about it? Yeah. How are you feeling? Give me an opportunity to talk, express, or just to say, I don't know, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what it is. That's what a friend would do as opposed to go to silent. You're not responsible. You're not guilty. There's something wrong with you because you're white. God created you and me. So I think the thing is just be, again, that's maybe an uncomfortable question. You know, think, oh, well, I don't know what they'll say. If they're your friends, like you called, you reached out to your friends. How are you feeling? How are you doing? It's that simple to me. That starts the dialogue. And then maybe the two of you, the three or four, decide this is what we're going to continue to do. This is the way we're going to change our path going forward. Great. Any of you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I just want to close with three things. Number one. I forgot all three, but, uh, no, oh, here's the first one. Number one, I know even right now in here, there's some of us who are saying or immediately trying to counteract with arguments internally what we're saying. And I just want to just say, let's just hold off on that, right? 
because that's that's where that's where the writing off happens. Mm-hmm. Let's be open enough to hear, even if you disagree, and think about it. Right? Have you ever been in an argument? Well, I know you haven't. Uh, you've never been in an argument with your spouse, thinking of the next counterpoint and dismissing what they're saying. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm about to drop the bomb on them once as soon as they're done talking, and you totally miss. Everything that they're, no, oh yeah, I, I knew you guys didn't do that. So that, that's what I want to say don't do right now, okay? And here's the other thing that I would say. You know, uh, the whole integration stuff, that was in the 60s? That is not long ago. Sometimes I think like, man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it was not, I know it's not long because some of y'all were alive then and are in here today, okay? <laughs> I know it's not that long. So here's what, here's what I want to close with and, um, just think about if, if this applies today. And this is from a um, letter from Birmingham, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King also. He said this. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more, more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is, the, which is the presence of justice, who consistently say, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who con- constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season, Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from, pre, from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is w- much more bewildering than outright rejection. And something that I consistently ask myself on two fronts is, if I was alive during Dr. Martin Luther King's time, would I have been a part of the freedom movement? Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree as a congregation that what he did was absolutely 100% the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But how many people who were white at that time agreed with him then? Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. They were wrong by not, by not jumping in. Mm-hmm. And my question to you is, I wonder 10 years from now or 15 years from now, if we'll look back and say, I, I was so blind. Yeah. I was, I was ignorant. I, I didn't know. And isn't that how life is? I was sharing this with staff, and this will be my last point here. Um, how many of you know... When you were 15, you felt like you were on top of the world, right? You felt like you had a good measure of what was going on. And then when you're 20, you're like, I was an idiot when I was 15, right? Mm -hmm. But now that I'm 20, now I got it going on, right? (laughs) And five years later, you're like, oh my goodness, when I was 20. Just pull up your senior high school yearbook picture, okay? And you'll you'll think this, right? And what I want to say is, right now, I would guarantee that most of us, we might not say it out loud, but we have a good understanding of our surroundings. We feel like we're right in most areas. And I wonder just if five more years pass, if we'll look back to where we are now and we'll say, man, I was stupid on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. With that understanding, there's nothing you can really do being stupid, (laughs) right? Except once you understand that, you come from a humble place, right? Mm -hmm. You're not so entrenched in your positions. You can say... Well, I'm thinking about this, but I could be wrong in this. I could be wrong. And just saying I could be wrong, that means so much. It means so much. 
Let's all close with that. Um, I think sometimes you don't you don't have to say anything. We feel like we have to say something because we live in the era where everybody has opinions and we're told that everyone's opinion matters. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. People remember you being present. That's what they remember. They they may not remember what what you said. You know, and sometimes we, we post things or say things that we think are super insightful that don't mean anything to whoever we're saying them to. But people remember us being there. And so I think what Billy said, just how are you feeling? Ask questions. How are you doing? Are you okay? Hey, I'm here for you. That's all you got to say. You don't got to give advice. You don't have to. I learned in my marriage early on. Sometimes it's the best thing I can say is just, I'm sorry you feel that way. Because <laughs> I, I can't fix it, right? There are situations you can't fix. I did love, I did love, there's a, a designer I follow, and she said, you know, when everything went down, she said, we see you, we hear you, we love you, we mourn with you, and we don't pretend to understand, but we are beside you in this. And then she said, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And, and I wanted to touch on this, and this was kind of a, a point Johnny and I went back and forth on, but because the first response that somebody put to her is, all lives matter. Violence and rage online is not the solution. Okay. It's true. Violence and rage online is not the solution. But I think something that's important to understand is there are people saying Black Lives Matter. Let me back up. If we're in church, we are Life Journey Church. But we're also part of the capital C church, right? Which is the church overall, the body of Christ as it's understood in the Bible. That's what we're a part of. But we are one small part of that. Um, Westboro Baptist Church. How many of you would say that you're in agreement with Westboro Baptist Church on how they approach things? No one. Okay. There's a difference between saying Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter as a militant organization. In some regards. Um, the same as there's a difference between a lower KC church, as in Life Journey Church, and the capital C church, the overall body of Christ. Black lives do matter. And the saying black lives matter is to draw attention to where there's been systematic racism and historical racism and historical inequality equality, and they're trying to draw attention to an issue that they want to see resolved. Not they, Black Lives Matter, are there individuals within a militant movement that want to see police officers killed? Yes, there are. As a movement, do they believe that? No, they don't. And so in the same way, when our initial pushback, when somebody says Black Lives Matter is to be like, all lives matter, blue lives matter, military lives matter, is it's insensitive to the situation because if if your house was on fire and you called the fire department to say hey my house is on fire i need you to put it out and the 911 operator said okay we're going to send the fire department to everybody in the neighborhood because all houses matter no this is the house that's on fire this is the house that we want to draw attention to that's what black lives matter is trying to do from a philosophical and a healthy standpoint there are unhealthy individuals, just like there are unhealthy individuals within the police department, just like there are unhealthy individuals in the church. Just like, And so don't generalize the movement or try to push back on that movement right away because you think it's overwhelmingly negative right off the bat. That's not what it's trying to do. 
It's trying to draw attention to there's an issue that we want to peacefully resolve. And so when we say things rapidly, like all lives matter, we're being insensitive. And so um, what we should say from a distance is we mourn with you. Help us understand. We want to understand. We want to pray. We want to love. We want to do this. Just help us. We don't know what to say. It's okay to not know. Mm-hmm. Um, I opened my phone to look at that tweet, and Nicole just she texted me. She said, hey, there's a, a, an active shooter situation in Baton Rouge right now while we're having this conversation, and two officers are killed. While we're sitting here talking about it. So I don't know how you plan on closing, Jim. We definitely need to pray for that. Yep. Um, I appreciate you all talking through this and sitting through it with us. I know it's a longer service than usual, but yeah. And let me, let me just add one other point to the black lives matter thing. If you're coming from a position that we're all already equal in a social standpoint, I could understand you saying all lives matter. But if you're coming from a position saying we feel like we don't matter as much as everyone else, so can we just say black lives matter? I can understand that position too. And we're not here saying that you need to be on board or against it. Once again, what we're saying is how about we rise above that and affirm people, right? In whatever way we see fit. Uh, or let me, let me even say this in the way God sees fit. Cause you might not agree with what God's asking you to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, you know, we, Reichen and I were going back and forth on this, and it was a, it was a great discussion. But I, I just want to say, if you, if you, as a white male, if I view that everyone is on the same level playing field, I can understand pushing back against Black Lives Matter because you're trying to say you're trying to elevate yourself than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But what if Black Lives aren't on the same social level playing field as the rest of us? Mm-hmm. You might still think they are, but what if they're not? It allows room and grace for you to say, okay, I I understand what you're coming from. Because they weren't on the same social level status as us. And if if you believe that racism still doesn't have effects on culture and our lives, and this isn't just African-American, white, this is all over, um, I would challenge you. I would just challenge you. I'll just challenge you. All right. Thanks. Guys, I really appreciate your willingness to come up here and share your hearts with us. Thank you. Can you give me a hand? So I want to close uh, with this. Last week we talked about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where Jesus was highlighting a characteristic of God that he hates pride. He absolutely hates it. In fact, Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud. And I know that a lot of it, we all face a lot of opposition in life. But how many of you want to be opposed by God? I mean, that would be the worst, right? The unfortunate thing about pride, though, is that it is almost impossible to see it in ourselves. Because out of all the sin that we contend with, it is like the most deceptive one. Listen to what, I I read this last week, but it bears repeating. This is a a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. And it's how he starts out the chapter entitled, The Great Sin. 
Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they're guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered, or they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they're cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual immorality, I warned you that there was a center of Christian morals that did not lie there. But now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So pride is extremely difficult to see in ourselves. It's so offensive when we see it in others. And those of us who have allowed the Holy Spirit to convict us of our own pride know how much that's true. Now why am I bringing this up when we're talking about racism? It's because just like pride, prejudice and racism is almost impossible to see in the mirror. And the reason we can't see it in ourselves is because prejudice and racism is rooted in pride. Anything that makes you think you're better than anybody else is rooted, is, is deeply rooted in pride. And the only way that we can win the war on pride is through humility. And the only way that we can even be empathetic towards people who are hurting is to approach them through humility. And scripture tells us how to do that. In Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul's writing to the Philippians and he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. If we, as followers of Jesus, if we, as a church, are going to take our place in leading our world away from this racial divide, we have got to see every person we come in contact with more important than ourselves. We have got to approach people, individuals, and even people groups with humility. We cannot afford to ever see ourselves as better than anyone. Because pride is, is it's just going to, it's, it's evil. So I want us to close in prayer, and, and I think it would be good if we all just stood and, and took hands across the aisles and just really submit our hearts to God. Because in order for us to 
be the church, to be the, the people of God that God has called us to be, we have each got to be humble. Let's pray.